All right, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 7. We're coming through the book of Acts together as a church, and we land in Acts chapter 7 this morning. There's a study guide going around, or that should be in your seat, it says Acts 6 8 through Acts 7 60 at the top of it. If you don't have one of those, maybe you can throw a hand up. I'm going to try to get some extras to you. Some folks in the back there. If we can take some of these back there, that'd be great. Let's go to the Lord and pray together and ask Him to help us during this time, okay? Pray with me. Father, thank you again for your word. We love it, Lord. We love your word. God, I pray that you'd help us as we meditate together on these truths, that you would open our eyes to see glorious things about you. You'd open our eyes to see, Lord, the things that we need to see about ourselves. God, give us understanding. Give us wisdom. By your Holy Spirit, speak to us. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Convict us of sin, God. Encourage us. Build us up. Conform us into the image of Christ through your word this morning. God, unless you help us in this time, this is just vain repetition. So please, God, we believe your word that unless you build the house, we labor in vain. God, please come and build this house this morning. Help us to lean in together, God, and let your presence be with us. Be with us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I want to talk for a minute about this whole section of Acts chapter 6, verse 8, right in the middle of chapter 6, all the way to chapter 7, verse 60, the end of chapter 7, which is a large section, which we're going to take in two parts over the next two Sundays. We're going to take this in two parts, this section of Scripture in two parts over the next two Sundays. Now, just a quick overview about what this, this passage, what's here, is we have Stephen... As you begin in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, we have Stephen is preaching the gospel in these places. He's going around Jerusalem, and all of a sudden he comes into a lot of persecution, and he finds himself standing before the Sanhedrin, just like the apostles before him stood before the Sanhedrin, that leading council in Jerusalem. And as he stands there, he begins to speak in chapter 7, verse 1, and for 53 verses, chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 53, he preaches the truth in the midst of that high court called the Sanhedrin. 
And then at the end of this passage, after, after he is done speaking, what we see is Stephen is going to be persecuted even to death. He's going to be martyred. He's going to be stoned to death. And we're going to get to see his death. Now, we're going to take it in two parts. The man, Stephen, and the message that he preached. So the man and the message. We'll take the message today that he preached, mainly in chapter 7, verse 1 through 53. And then next week, we'll look at the man, the man, Stephen. So by way of overview of this whole section, before we get into what Stephen actually said before the Sanhedrin, by way of overview, I just want to speak about a couple of things here. So you have a paragraph, an overview paragraph on your study guide, and I want to read that to you and kind of walk you through this for just a second. Look at it with me. This story in the book of Acts, and I mean Stephen's story from 6.8 to 7.60, this story in the book of Acts represents a transition from the spread of the gospel throughout Jerusalem to the spread of the gospel throughout the rest of the world. And in this passage, we see a finality in corporate Israel's rejection of the Christ, as well as a finality in Christ's rejection of corporate Israel. And what do I mean by corporate Israel? What I mean is not that every individual Jew has rejected Christ or every individual Jew is rejected by Christ, but I mean corporate Israel as in that nation, that, that, that entity that is represented by the leaders of the Sanhedrin, that they have rejected Christ and Christ has rejected them. That's what I mean by corporate Israel. Now, now, in this overview, let me just try to explain a few things. Again, by way of just understanding where this whole passage fits in the whole book of Acts. Now, that first sentence that we just read is pretty easy to explain. That, that the book of Acts represents a transition. A transition is about to happen from the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem, which we've seen in Acts 1 through 7, to beginning in Acts chapter 8, we're going to see the spread of the gospel go out and it's going to explode on the rest of the world. Now, we read about that outline in Acts 1-8, right? Chapter 1, verse 8. That when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. That's Acts 1 through 7. All Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the rest of the book of Acts. So this represents a transition in this passage of Scripture. A transition is happening. Now, I, I, I want you to think about this. Just in, in uh, the writer Luke, who's writing this, inspired by the Spirit of God, he's, he's laying these things out purposefully. For example, in representation of the transition from Jerusalem to all nations, we also see a transition from a focus on Peter and his preaching to a focus throughout the rest of Acts on Paul and his preaching. And lo and behold, Paul gets introduced to us at the very end of Acts chapter 7 in this passage. Just before the gospel is about to explode out into the world in Acts 8, we get a little introduction to this man named Saul, who will later be known as Paul. And we see him there looking on as Stephen is being stoned to death. So this is a transition happening here. Second point is that we see here, and second point in that paragraph, is that we see a finality in corporate Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Christ. In other words, this is a final blow against any hope that corporate Israel, the nation of Israel, is going to accept the Christ as their Messiah. This passage represents a final blow 
to that idea. Now to understand that, you need to understand the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is this group of men, 70 men plus the high priest, most powerful men in Israel. This is the Supreme Court of Israel. And this Sanhedrin, which Stephen's about to be standing in front of, this Sanhedrin represents the leadership. This is corporate Israel. This is the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. So do you understand the Sanhedrin? Now, if you understand the Sanhedrin, then you understand this, that there's a pattern that's been happening here. Just like Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin when he was being judged in that, in that uh, high courtroom, he stood there, Jesus himself did, and they rejected, the Sanhedrin rejected the Christ. So in the same way, in Acts chapter 1 through 7, I don't know if you noticed this, but as we read through Acts 1 through 7, the gospel spreading in Jerusalem, what do we see? We see Jesus ascend on high. We see the Holy Spirit poured out. And then, and then what do we see? We see three rounds of the believers. First, it was Peter and John. They're taken before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin rejects their message. And then we see all the apostles in chapter 5 and 6 taken before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin rejects their message. And then we see here today Stephen. As we read the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, we realize that Stephen is being, is being taken before the council. He's taken before the high priest, and they're going to reject his message as well. There's a threefold in the book of Acts rejection, and that's the way we get the gospel spread through Jerusalem in Acts 1 through 7. There's a finality here. It's like a three strikes you're out kind of thing. They, they have rejected, rejected, rejected their Messiah. Died for their sins, risen from the dead. And they want, they want nothing to do with them. And their rejection has become progressively more intense in, in its hostility, right? At first, they just threatened Peter and John. Then they threatened the apostles and beat them. And now what we're seeing is Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin. Then not only are they going to threaten him and beat him, but they're going to kill him. He's going to be the first martyr in the church of Jesus Christ. They're rejecting their Messiah. And so I want you to see that this is a this is a passage that's representing the fact that the nation of Israel has rejected their Messiah. But the true Israel is about to explode on the nations as we get into chapter eight. Now, third point in that paragraph, we also see here a finality in Christ's rejection of corporate Israel. So not only do they reject him, but we see a finality in Christ rejecting them now there's a there's a few details here that show us that sort of thing such as Stephen's face shining like a second Moses right here or Jesus standing at the very end as the judge standing to his feet as Stephen dies several little details but probably the main thing that you need to see is this that when Stephen preaches this message think about this message that he preaches we're about to read it in just a moment and as you think about this message, here's what I want you to think about. This is the longest message recorded for us in the book of Acts. Preached by Stephen at this transitional moment. Preached by Stephen. Longest message in the book of Acts. And here's what it's not. It's not an offer to them of the forgiveness of sins. When he preaches this message, the longest message in the book of Acts, he's not offering them the forgiveness of sins, but rather he is raining down the condemnation that they have rejected Christ. Christ has rejected to them. It rejected them, and it's over. It's over. Now, again, let me remind you, I do not mean that it's over for every individual Israelite. Saul's still got to get saved, right? 
Many priests and, and leaders of synagogues are going to get saved. They're going to come to Christ. But I mean that nation as a whole has rejected their Messiah. And the Messiah, Christ Jesus, has rejected them. Now let's move into this message, okay? So with that kind of overview, that kind of tone of thinking about where this passage fits in the book of Acts. I want to zone in on verses 1 through 53 of chapter 7. This is the message. I'm going to focus in here on this message that he preached. What does Stephen say to the Sanhedrin? Now, number one, let's talk for a minute about Stephen's background. Who is this man? Stephen is one of the seven that were chosen, kind of those uh, prototype deacons that we, we heard about last week at the beginning of Acts chapter 6. That's Stephen. Now, we'll hear more about the man Stephen next week. But that's Stephen, this man. Now, how did he end up standing before the Sanhedrin? Here's Stephen, and he's going throughout Jerusalem. He's doing signs and wonders, drawing these crowds. He's preaching the gospel like a wild man. He, it even seems he's going into the synagogues, and he's preaching the gospel to these people. And people get angry about this, and they try to dispute with him. They try to enter into debate with him, but they can't resist Stephen's words as they debate with him, so they just get angry, and they begin to lead out a smear campaign against this man. And that smear campaign makes it all the way to, as I said earlier, to the Sanhedrin, to the council, to the high priest, and next thing you know, Stephen is seized, and he's taken before the Sanhedrin for this message, this gospel that he's been preaching all throughout Jerusalem. Now, what was he preaching? What was Stephen preaching all throughout Jerusalem that stirred up such a ruckus here. What's he been saying that made people so angry? And I think if you look at the accusations that were being laid against him, then you can kind of get an idea for what it is that Stephen has been preaching. So look with me at chapter 6. I want you to see these accusations. Go back to chapter 6. Look at verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said... We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So we're talking about some kind of Old Testament stuff, right? Like he's speaking against Moses and God here. Go down to verse, excuse me, verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So think about that for a minute. We know he's talking about Jesus the destroyer. We know that. And he's talking about things about Moses and about the law and about this temple that Jesus is going to tear down. So Moses, the law, the temple, he's talking about something about this whole Old Testament system is here, okay? Now, they're making it sound like that he's preaching against the Old Testament system. They're making it, they're slandering him. as this false witnesses saying he's speaking against Moses, against the law, against temple. He's speaking against these things. But what is he actually saying? And we can think about Jesus' words and what he said and understand the gospel and what the gospel is. And here's what, what Stephen's going around saying. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. Jesus has fulfilled all of this Old Testament system. He is the fulfillment of these things. Moses, all the things that he wrote, all the promises that he laid out, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. 
The law that was laid out, Jesus fulfilled that law. He lived out the only man to perfectly live out that law and all the shadows that are found in that law, that one that's coming. He is the one. He's fulfilled it. That temple, the whole temple system with its sacrifices, Jesus fulfilled that role. Every sacrifice, every lamb that was slaughtered in the place of a sinner was just a picture of the Lamb of God who was slain for us, Christ Jesus the Lord. And He's fulfilled it. No need for sacrifice anymore. That's the kind of stuff He's preaching. What about those priests? Every single priest in that temple were a picture that we need a mediator. We need somebody to mediate between us and God because God is holy and we are sinful. And if we don't have a mediator that can deal with our sin and deal with God's wrath, then we're done for. But there's a mediator and a priest. But every priest was a picture of that one who came, Christ Jesus the Lord. So therefore what? No more need for the priesthood. No more need for that, that temple system. Now you imagine, you imagine how hard of a blow that would have been for the Sanhedrin. Here's these people that, that that's what they do. One of them's called the captain of the temple. They leave this thing out. They have they, they lead out these sacrifices coming in, these priests coming in, and now all of a sudden they're out of a job because Christ has fulfilled it all. And Stephen's preaching that. And people are becoming angry that Stephen is preaching that sort of thing. You imagine what it would have done to the employment rate in the temple. Unemployment would have gone that would have would have gone up there, right? I want you to think about Acts 6, verse 7. Remember Acts 6, 7? It says, it goes out of its way to tell us that, that many priests were coming to the faith. Can you imagine that? These priests coming in, and they hear this message about Christ that has fulfilled the priesthood. He's fulfilled the sacrifices. The temple system is done. And, and they hear about it, and they say, I believe in him. And they put their trust in the true high priest, the true sacrifice. And they got to go find another job. Stephen's preaching things like this. Now they're trying to twist, they're trying to twist Stephen's word as if he is anti-Moses or anti-law or anti-temple. But he's none of those things. He's just saying Christ has fulfilled those things. Here's a quick analogy. Imagine your loved one is off to war. And they're gone. They're off to war. Your loved one, the one that your beloved, the one that you love is off to war. And the only way you could communicate with your loved one is through letter writing and letter receiving. So you write a letter and you receive letters and you write a letter and you receive it. And you love letter writing and you love receiving those letters of, that, of the one, your beloved, who is gone. But then all of a sudden he returns and all letter writing ceases. It's over with. Now, you imagine how silly it would be if somebody came to you after that and said, man, you must be real anti-letters. Why'd you stop writing letters? You must be so anti-letters. You must hate those letters you received from your beloved. And you say, no, what do you mean? He's here. It's fulfilled. The one that I wrote to has arrived. And in the same way, this is the way Stephen is speaking about the law, even though they're trying to twist his words. So let's, let's move that's kind of the background of what's going on. Now, in the midst of that background, Stephen finds himself standing before the Sanhedrin. And he's asked this question in chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? All these accusations, are these things so? And Stephen said, and so what we're about to see. We're about to see a layout of this message, 53 verses of Stephen 
preaching in the midst of the Sanhedrin. I want to try to break it up. It's a large passage. So I want to break it up for us a little bit so that we can kind of get an idea of what he's saying. He has a point that he is driving in. And I want you to see it, okay? I want you to see it here. So we're going to read verses 1 through 16. Verse 1 through 16. And as we read it, notice this. He's giving a summary of Genesis here. You get, Think about this. You got all these accusations, all these accusations that have gone down with Moses and the law and the Old Testament system. And now he's going to go right back to the very beginning, even past Moses to Abraham. He's going to start there and give us an overview of Genesis. Now, as we get ready to read this, listen to me real quick. At the very end, he's going to look at these people as he turns to apply it. And Stephen's going to say this. Just as your fathers do, so do you. He's going to lean in in just a minute. At the very end, it's going to help you understand where Stephen is going. At the end of this message, he's going to lean in and say, just like your fathers did, so do you. So here's something to notice. As we read through this, notice our fathers. Stephen's going to be talking about our fathers. Our fathers. Our fathers. And at the very end, just like your fathers did, so do you, Sanhedrin. So do you, Israel. So keep an eye out for that. And let's read together verses 1 through 16. Starting verse 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran. And said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you're now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, Jealous of Joseph told him, excuse me, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and, and, and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. Highlight that our fathers, our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. He and our fathers and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Now, the first thing we notice as we read through that, 
is it gives us a story of how, how the patriarchs came to be. Now remember, the patriarchs here, three times it says, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. Remember at the end, he's going to say, just like your fathers did, so are you. So the patriarchs are fathers. So the first thing we see is, where do these patriarchs, where do these fathers come from? They came from Abraham's lineage and all these promises given to Abraham. And Abraham had a son named Isaac and Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons who were our fathers. So we're introduced to, to our fathers here. And then what's the first thing we hear about our fathers according to the preaching of Stephen? Verse 9 says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. They sold him into Egypt. Now, who is this Joseph? Who is this Joseph here? And here's what I want you to see about Joseph. Joseph is a type of Christ. Jo jo Joseph is a shadow of Christ. He's a Christ figure. Now, very quickly, let me just give you about seven bullet points to prove that to you, that Joseph is a figure of Christ. Listen to this closely, and I think you'll recognize it almost seems like you're talking about two people at the same time. I'm indebted to Hunter Hansen and his list that he sent me on this. Listen to number one. Joseph was the most beloved son of his father. Most beloved son of his father. Sound like somebody else you know? Number two. He was hated, rejected, and despised by his own brethren. Do you remember his dreams? He had the dreams that he was going to rule over all the world. And they rejected that, that he would rule over them and over all the world. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, it says, about Jesus, just like Joseph. Number three, his own brethren wanted to kill him and then handed him over to foreigners. Sounds like someone else we know. Number four, to his father he seemed to be dead and then suddenly he's alive. Number five, he was obedient through all of his suffering. He was obedient through all of his injustice that he suffered. Number six, through his suffering, which was inflicted by the hands of his own people, through his suffering, he is exalted as the ruler of a pagan nation. And number seven, through his suffering and exaltation, it says... He saved many people alive. In fact, Joseph goes on to say that's the reason why God did what he did. Is that through his suffering and his exaltation, he would save many people alive. And so obviously Joseph is a type of Christ. Joseph is a shadow, a, a Christ figure. And so how, how are the patriarchs or the fathers, how are they portrayed in the preaching of Stephen? They rejected the Christ figure. The first thing we see about them is that, is that in jealousy, they, they want to murder him and they sell him into slavery. They rejected the Christ figure. And yet God still raises up the Christ figure to save the very people that wanted to murder him and rejected him and sold him into slavery. Joseph rises up and still saves them. That's the patient mercy of God with the fathers who rejected the Christ figure. Now let's go to our second section. This is a long section, verse 17 through 43. Verse 17 through 43. Now we'll, this is going to be, as we read this, we get ready to read it. This is an overview of Exodus. We just got an overview of Genesis. 
Now we're going to give an overview of Exodus with a focus on, on Moses here. So let's, let's read this overview of Exodus that Stephen gives right in front of the Sanhedrin. Starting verse 17. And as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers. Notice that phrase, our fathers. He forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. And brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old. Speaking about Moses. When he was 40 years old. It came into his heart to visit his brothers. The children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged. He defended the oppressed man and avenged him. By striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that. His brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust them aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled. And became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him, Moses, appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. Our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers. Our fathers refused to obey him. But thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven 
as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. It's a long passage that's, that's summarizing Exodus here. And let's, what, let me summarize what just happened and what we just read. We just read that the people of Israel, which they keep calling our fathers, our fathers, our fathers, they're enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. But God raises up a deliverer in Moses. But then our fathers, our fathers reject Moses as their deliverer. And that's what we just read. That's a summary of what Stephen just preached. So remember, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. And he's, just, he's about to say in just a moment, you're just like your fathers. You're just like them. Now, is there another Christ figure here? We saw a Christ figure in Genesis in Joseph. Is there another Christ figure here in, in what Stephen just preached about Exodus? Is there? Yes and amen. It's Moses. He is this figure of Christ. And I want you to know, I'm not making that up. Look at verse 35 right in the middle of verse 35 says this man speaking about Moses God sent as both ruler and redeemer he sent him as both ruler and redeemer what a figure of Christ look at verse 36 this man led them out performing Wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. He led them out of bondage. He led them out of slavery. He's the figure of the Christ. And if you don't believe it, look at verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now Moses said that in Deuteronomy 18. God's going to raise up for you, people of Israel, a prophet. A prophet's coming like me. A prophet's coming like me, but greater than me. And so Moses is this figure of Christ, this, this, this uh, type of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Now, how are the fathers, how are the fathers portrayed as, as, as living, as we read this overview of Exodus? How are they portrayed here? They rejected the Christ figure again. Just like they rejected Joseph and sold him into slavery. Here's Moses raised up as a Christ figure. And they reject him. They reject him. Look, look with me at verse, verse 25. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. He thought surely they'll know that I'm here for salvation. But they didn't understand. They rejected him. And then 40 years later, it says in verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And verse 42 says, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. So how are the fathers portrayed in Genesis? They're portrayed as the ones that rejected the Christ figure. How are they portrayed in Exodus? They're portrayed as the one that rejected the Christ figure. Do you see a point? That Stephen is trying to make here. Let's go to the next section. Verse 44 through 50. Now Stephen's going to go just a little bit farther. Into, into Old Testament history. He's going to focus in on. The building of the tabernacle. At the end of Exodus. 
all the way through to Joshua taking that tabernacle into the promised land and, and the tabernacle being there through Judges, Judges and Ruth's time. And then he's going to speak of just a little bit about David and about Solomon, David, who wanted to build a temple to take the place of the tabernacle, a structure that's standing there permanent. And Solomon ends up being the one that built that temple. So read it with me. Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it, that tabernacle, in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was, so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So here we got more Old Testament history with a focus on the building of the tab tabernacle and the temple. Verse 48. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so again, you see this emphasis three times in this little section of our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. What were they like? What did they do? Is there a Christ figure here? In this little section, as he moves forward into, into the history of the Old Testament, is there a Christ figure here? Yes, there's a Christ figure. It's the tabernacle, the temple itself. It was designed, the tabernacle was designed after the fall of man to teach us something. How is holy God going to dwell with sinful men? How could it be that holy God could dwell with sinful men? And so this temple is set up and you've got the Christ figure of the sacrifices. That the only way that holy God can dwell with sinful men is, is that if something happens, something happens against their sins. And so a lamb is provided, a sacrifice is provided, they would be slaughtered in their place. That their sin would be atoned for, their sin would be covered, to be dealt with through the death of another. So that man, sinful man, could dwell in the presence of God. There's a Christ figure not only in the sacrifices, but in the, in the priest, the high priest, the mediator between God and man, as we were talking about a moment ago. So you have the Christ figure here in the temple, in the tabernacle itself. And how are the fathers, how are the fathers portrayed by Stephen in his preaching? They're portrayed as those who miss the point. God's teaching you how holy God can dwell with sinful man, but you missed the point. You missed it. How do I know that? Because in verse 48, after describing the building of the tabernacle and the temple, in verse 48 he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Don't you know that? That the temple was just to teach you something. But the Most High doesn't dwell in houses made by hands. He doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. And then he quotes Isaiah. Of saying that where God says... I." Thus says the Lord, look at the heavens and the earth. I created all these things. Where's the house that you could build me? And in that context in Isaiah, it's talking about a people of Israel, the fathers who had missed the point. They missed the point of the temple. They missed the point of the tabernacle here. 
And so we come to present day to these people that Stephen's talking to, and they killed the living temple. They killed the living temple, the living tabernacle, Christ Jesus himself, who came to tabernacle with man. They killed him and began to defend this old shadow. This old shadow that the system was over with now. And so I want to look at that in verse 51 through 53. Now this is where Stephen is going to, he's going to land somewhere. You got this Old Testament layout about our fathers who rejected the Christ figure and Joseph, our fathers who rejected uh, uh, Moses and Joseph, our, our fathers who missed the point of the temple, our fathers. And, and then we're going to get this application charge that comes from right here. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Did you hear that? As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He said, just like your fathers did, just like I walked you through from Genesis all the way up, just like your fathers, you're doing the same thing. Now, do you get inspired by the boldness of this man? Can you imagine him standing there before the Supreme Court of, of Israel? Can you imagine that? And he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. You're the one that's wrong. You're saying, I'm anti-God. I'm anti-Moses. I'm anti-law. You missed the whole law because you missed the one that it pointed to. Can you imagine the boldness of this man? He calls him stiff-necked. That's you stubborn, you, you obstinate people. You just set in your own ways, you stiff-necked people. Now that word was used many times in the Old Testament, specifically in the passage in Exodus 32 through Exodus 34, where the people, you know, Stephen just spoke about it, where they worship the golden calf. And four times in that passage, he says, stiff-necked, stiff-necked, stiff-necked. That's what he calls them back in Exodus 32 through 34. It says, it's as if Stephen is saying, look, you read the Old Testament and you put yourself in the place of Moses, but you're not Moses. You are those stiff-necked people worshiping the golden calf. Then he calls them uncircumcised in heart and ear in verse 51. That's a prick at their... their uh, the way they view themselves, their identity of we are the people of Israel. We are the circumcised. We, we are the nation of Israel. And he says, he says, you are uncircumcised in heart and ear. You might look like a Jew on the outside, but you're a pagan on the inside. And straightforward with them about these things. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. In other words, God, Sanhedrin, you're not just rejecting you're not just rejecting Peter and John the first time he stood before you. You're not just rejecting all the apostles who stood before you and you beat them. And you're not just rejecting me, Stephen says. You are rejecting God. You're, you're resisting the Spirit of God. That's who you're resisting. Nation of Israel. In verse 51, as your fathers did, so do you. You're just like your fathers. Just like they rejected, rejected, rejected the truth. So you're rejecting it in the same way. In verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
They killed those who announced the beforehand the coming of the righteous one. I love that. Those prophets were doing what? They were announcing the coming of the righteous one. That there's one coming that's going to be the, the sacrifice for sinners and the great high priest mediator between God and men. He's coming. And they persecuted him, persecuted those prophets and killed those prophets. And then he came and they killed and persecuted him. And then the ones that continue to preach about the one that's already come, they kill and persecute them. And at the very end here, whom you, the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He's telling the Sanhedrin that you murdered him. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You denied the law that you claim to believe by murdering the one who actually fulfilled it. That very same law. Now that's Stephen's message. Why is this message recorded for us? That's his message. Why, why does he, why does he uh, preach it? And why does Luke, as he lays out Acts 1 through 7, and we're getting ready to transition into the, 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 the true Israel, taking the gospel to all nations. Why is this message recorded right here? What we've been noticing as we read Acts 1 through 7 is, is this, this moving on from Corporate Israel as the people of God to no, no, the true Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. We've been seeing that as we came through Acts 1 through 7. We've been seeing this gradual moving away from the temple. That they're going to the temple now just to evangelize and preach the gospel. But this gradual moving away from the system of the temple in Acts 1 through 7. We've been seeing increasing hostilities towards the church in Acts 1 through 7. Threats and then beatings and now martyrdom. They're going to stone him to death. And so what's, the, what's, this, what's this message recorded here for us? Why is it here? And this is a final, it's a final nail in the coffin here. Think about what he's saying. He didn't offer them forgiveness for their sin. That's not what he's doing here. This is a final nail in the coffin for corporate Israel. They have rejected their Messiah. It's moving on to the nations. And that Christ, that Messiah, has rejected them. He's rejected them. And let's talk about a couple of takeaways here. There's a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot that we could uh, take away from this passage. But I want to mention the two things I got there at the bottom of your study guide. Number one, I want us to be encouraged to worship God for his patience. I want us as a church to be encouraged in this, to worship God for his patience. Now, we see the patience of God in Stephen's message, right? I mean, he literally just took us back to Abraham and walked us through. We see the patience of God there. We see the people that rejected Joseph, and yet God still raised up Joseph to save those very people. We see the patient mercy of God. And all throughout, we see the people, the, the fathers, the people of Israel, rejecting God and pushing away from God and disobeying God. And yet God is patient and patient and patient. He's merciful to them. I want to read a verse to you in Nehemiah chapter 9. I would encourage you to read all of Nehemiah chapter 9 with this mindset of understanding the patience of God. You want to understand the patience of God? Read the overview of the Old Testament in, in Nehemiah 9. Let me just give you one passage out of that. Verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands 
They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But listen to this. Patience of God. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Go read Psalm 78. Go read Nehemiah 9 and see the patience of this God over and over again as he's provoked by these people. He doesn't break out in wrath against them. He, he holds off in patience and in mercy and slowness to anger. The patience of God is an amazing attribute of God if you ever study it. It's called throughout the scriptures the long suffering of God. That our God is a God that suffers long with us. Our God is a God that endures suffering for us for long periods of time. Our God is a God that, that other places in the scripture is called slow to anger. He is slow to anger. He's the opposite of quick tempered. Could you imagine if our God was a quick tempered God? We would all be destroyed in a moment. But oh, he's so slow to anger. He's long suffering. He's a patient God. A.W. Pink said, the patience of God is that excellency which causes him to sustain great injuries without immediately avenging himself. Without immediately avenging himself. Nahum 1.3. Nahum 1.3 says, the patience of God, excuse me, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Nahum 1.3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. So it's not that he doesn't act because he doesn't have power. He has almighty power, but he's slow to anger and great in power. I heard one person refer to the power of God's patience. You ever thought about that? That God's patience is a powerful attribute. You say, what do you mean by that? Because think about this. Anything God would be, would be geared up to move upon is going to be a just cause, right? It's going to be a good thing. It's going to be a just cause. So it's not that God is being restrained and doing something bad. It's there's good things, just things, and nothing can stop His almighty power. Nothing except what? Except, except Himself. Only He can restrain Himself. That's His patience. That here's God in all His power, ready to pour it out for a just cause, but He restrains Himself. It's the power of His patience. At any moment in my life, God could have poured out wrath on me. He could have sent me to hell forever, and He would have been right. He would have been good. It would have been a just thing, but God withheld, and He showed patience towards me. What about you? 2 Peter 3, 9, it says God's not slow in fulfilling His promises as some people count slowness, but He is patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. He's a patient God, and it's the reason that you're saved here today. That He waited. He was slow to anger. You deserved His anger, but He was slow to anger. So has He been patient with you? And if you say, yes, my God is a patient God, I encourage you, Worship Him for His patience. Is He being patient with you right now? And you're not saved and you don't know Christ. You've got some religion, but you don't know Christ, truly. Is He being patient with you right now? Which takes me to second takeaway. 
be warned about the limits of God's patience. Please be warned. Everyone here, please be warned about the limits of God's patience. God's patience is not unlimited. God's patience is not unlimited. Every time the Sanhedrin heard the truth, their heart was hardened a little more. When, when they heard it from Jesus and they rejected it, they stored up wrath in themselves and their heart was hardened. Every, when, when they heard from Peter and John, he stood before the Sanhedrin and preached Christ to them. Their heart was hardened. That window closed just a little more. And then they heard from all the apostles and the window closed a little more. And then they heard from Stephen and the window slammed shut and it's over. God's patience is through. His patience ran out. I want to encourage you to please be warned by this. And especially if you're like the Sanhedrin. If you're a religious people like them, churchgoers, as many of you are, church, church, maybe even church members. And if that's you and you, you have enough religion like this saying here to, to just inoculate you to the truth. Listen, listen to me. Listen to me. You need to be warned. His patience is going to run out with you. His patience is unlimited. Let me show you some terrifying words in Acts 7, what we just read a moment ago. Acts 7, verse 42. Tell me these words are not terrifying. Listen to them. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. Imagine those words. God, the only one that can save your soul, the only one that can awaken you from the dead, God turned away. And gave them over. Same language. Is it in Romans chapter 1? Listen to it. Romans chapter 1 and verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Do you know how terrifying that is? When God's patience runs thin and it's eventually gone and He gives them up to these things. In 2 Thessalonians, I want this to sit on us all. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Listen to it. Verse, verse 10. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Is that you? Refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You've got some religion, but you refuse the truth. Listen. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Proverbs 29 verse 1. It says. He who is often rebuked. Like the Sanhedrin. Or like religious people. That hear the truth. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Bible studies. Internet. You hear the truth. Over and over again. He who is often rebuked. But stiffens his neck. Will suddenly be destroyed. Without remedy. Without remedy, beyond healing. 
There's a time when God's patience runs out. How often do you think people presume upon the patience of God? And that happens, right? Think, think about that. Think how God's patience is misunderstood. Just think about that. Uh, Ecclesiastes 8.11. It says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, the hearts of the Son of Man is fully set in them to do evil. It's the patience of God, but they interpret it as, nothing's going to happen to me. I'm going to be okay. You're not okay. How many people presume upon His patience and then they wake up to being given over to it? And it's too late. Now, the reason I give this warning, especially to religious people, is, is mainly because this is what I see with the Sanhedrin here. It's what I see here. These religious people, the, the nation of Israel, just rejected their Messiah. So, so mainly I'm, I'm seeing that, but also I got other things on my mind, even recent things in our church of, of, of church discipline stuff, of someone that can seem so much for a time like a believer. And so you realize that they're not, they're, they've play games with religion. It looked religious. But something's missing. And so in the same way, this is why I give the warning, especially to religious people, churchgoers, church members, people that have heard the truth. Because do you know this, that, that to sometimes hearing a lot of the truth can be very, very dangerous for you. Did you know that? Sometimes being one that has more access to the, the Sanhedrin had more access to the truth than all the rest of the world. And, and sometimes having that kind of access to the truth can be more dangerous for you. Listen to this verse. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Listen. Take warning here. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience. Have you presumed upon his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You heard the truth and you heard the truth and you heard the truth and it became dangerous for you because every time you heard it, your heart was just a little bit harder and you stored up more and more wrath for yourself in the day of wrath that's coming. So I say, be warned by this. Brothers and sisters, please be warned by the limits of God's patience. I think this would be a good reason for every person here to examine your heart. Most of you here are religious people. And by that I mean you've heard a lot of the truth. And have you done that? Are you, could, it, could the charge be laid to you? I heard the truth, but I continue in my sin. I heard the truth, but I continue in my neglect of Christ. And I heard the truth, and I heard the truth, and I presume upon His patience, I think I'm going to be okay. Do you feel the warning of that? In Acts 7, it says, God turned away, and He gave them over to their idols. I want to end with that warning and pray in light of those things. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word, these truths. God, please help us. Thank You for Your glorious patience. That for so many here in this room, that you, you have saved so many souls represented in this room right now. And God, you could have at any moment, in a just way, 
obliterated us with your wrath, but you didn't. You held it off, God. You held back. You had patience and mercy with us. Thank you, Lord, that you're slow to anger. Thank you, Lord, that you're not quick-tempered, that you're long-suffering, that you're kind, that, you're, that, you're, that you stand ready to forgive, ready to pardon. What sweet truth about you, Lord. And God, I pray for any here right now that have, that have not come to you. God, I pray that before it's too late that you would save their soul. Before it's too late, God, that they would come to you. God calls all of us even now to examine ourselves, to examine our hearts, God. You told us to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. You told us to do that. God, please help us to do that. And I pray, God, that you would expose any here that are playing around with religion, God, and hearing the truth over and over again, and their hearts are being hardened. God, don't let it be hard, but soften their hearts. By your Spirit, cut them to the heart and bring them to the feet of the cross. God, I pray you'd give us an urgency about give us an urgency about this reality that we can be often rebuked and harden our hearts and suddenly it's over without remedy. God, I pray especially for my brothers and sisters that I know so well and love so much in this church, God. If there's any among us, God, that that are deceived and are falsely converted. God, please, don't let them stay there, God. Save them, Lord. And I pray, God, that every one of us will make it to the end. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.